Just read uh, just John 8, 44. Okay. Yeah, feel good verse of the summer, I think, is what you were looking for to come to RUF, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> okay, Jeremiah 2, 19 and 25 there, Josh. Okay. Uh, look, y'all, let me, uh, tonight what I want to do is introduce the topic that we'll be looking at uh, this uh, summer in our study. And it, 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 the truth is, the desire to do this study came from something that I feel like um, I, I've just been noticing from a distance uh, as we start to look at things. Because of all of the issues that I feel like I hear college students rejecting religion over, uh, it's because of the problem of human pain. Have you heard people reason this way? They'll look and they'll say along the lines of, well, I would believe in a God if I could believe in a God. But when I see the kind of human suffering and the kind of um, you know, tragedy, unexplained, unanswerable tragedy that's around, uh, that's around me every single day, whether it be personal or just the things that you read about in the newspapers, I just can't find a God that's in all that. <laughs> I can't see Him being... Uh, uh, anywhere in that. Now, the interesting thing about that is the Bible has an explanation for that issue, but it's a difficult explanation. The Bible attributes the pain that exists in the world and the problem with pain in the world as it exists to the large topic of sin. Um, <clears throat> and more specifically, sin as it comes to us in the center of the human heart. Um, I know that it's a difficult topic for us to look at, but I want to simply pitch to you that if we're going to have a, a Christianity that is workable and meaningful to ourselves and to those who question us about why we embrace it, you, you need to have a working answer to that question. Why is it that there is pain and suffering in the world? What is the Christian explanation for that unavoidable reality? Why is it out there? What's at its heart? Um, in other words, we're simply trying to ask and grapple with the question this summer, what's wrong with me? What is it that when it really comes down to it is wrong with me? What's going on inside of me? Um, I think that the failure to ask that question keeps you from being a whole person. Uh, that, that's as over the top as I think I can be about that. You, you are missing something of your humanity by not asking the question, what is it that's wrong with me? It's naive to look out and say that the problems in the world are superficial and because they're superficial, we can fix them using education. If we could just teach people the right thing to do, they'll do the right thing with the right information, right? Uh, if we could simply commit ourselves to changing the world, to be agents of change in the world, life would change. Hmm. All of those represent, in my opinion, naive looks at our own human nature. Uh, it surprises a lot of people to find out that, uh, in many ways, a, a real in-depth look at Christianity will reveal a little bit more pessimism about human nature than it does optimism. And I want to look at that this summer. Now look, there's about a billion different ways in which we could approach that very topic. Um, the one that I've chosen uh, to, to do it with is by looking at 
what have historically been known as the seven deadly sins. Back in the fourth century, it was Pope uh, uh, Gregory the Great who had declared a handful of particular sins to be especially heinous. So much so, they were the sins that brought you out of a state of grace. In other words, you could actually move away from a right relationship with God by committing one of these seven sins. Now, I have to give a a rather large disclaimer, and I'll probably give it every single week. Uh, Being a Protestant, uh, we do not distinguish between um, uh, sort of the venial sins versus the... uh, um, uh, the, 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 the deadly sins, the ones that are much more profound, uh, uh, sins of um, the different quality of sins, not necessarily. However, I think that we miss something by not paying attention to what our Roman Catholic brethren have taught us about the danger of these peculiar looks into the human soul. Because though they may not be presented to us in the Bible in just that particular way, the Bible spends lots of its ink talking to us about this list. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Seven deadly sins that the Bible talks about that I think are profound, not necessarily because of how they're organized. That's not what sort of got me excited about this. What I think is interesting about those topics is what a great glimpse into into the human heart they actually give us. Now, I would hope that you would be at least vaguely familiar with how much the idea of seven deadly sins has kind of passed into pop culture. Um, did anybody... Um, is the movie Seven still on people's pop culture radar screen? Uh, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, yeah, Kevin Spacey uh, was like nominated for an award, didn't he? No, no, that was uh, Usual Suspects. But an amazingly disturbing, brilliant, uh, fascinating movie centered around this idea of the seven deadly sins and this uh, you know, sort of crazed killer who commits them. Uh, you may not even realize that um, the, <laughs> the producers of the show Gilligan's Island, uh, Gilligan's Island, you remember this? Uh, this is a tale of a castaways. Okay, good. I, the older that I get, I worry about things that you're looking going, Gilligan, who is that? Um, but do you know that each of the characters on the island were intended to be one of the seven deadly sins. I had not heard of this until I started doing the study. You know, the professor uh, is pride. Uh, Mr. Howell, the millionaire, is uh, greed. Uh, Ginger, the movie star, is um, uh, extravagance or, or what came to be known as lust. Uh, Mary Ann was uh, envy. Uh, Miss Howell was uh, thoughtlessness or gluttony. Uh, the skipper, of course, was wrath, always screaming the whole time. And Gilligan was... Um, Sloth, <laughs> lazy, sleepy Gilligan, right? Um, so all I want to do tonight is to ask two questions very briefly. Why are we looking at this, and what does the Bible say generally about them? Just two quick points, and uh, hopefully at the end we can have some time for questions if you feel like uh, uh, playing Stump the Chump uh, after we're done with all this. First of all, why would we look at this? Well, <clears throat> I, would, I would pitch to you... <laughs> The most thoughtful people uh, who are writing and producing and making good art in our day uh, agree that sin is a cultural reality. Uh, Sin and the struggle that we have with sin um, is for almost every society, every thoughtful society, at all times and all places, 
recognize that this is a vital part of what it means for us to live together, that we've got to understand what's wrong with us. You know, Western society in many ways is preoccupied with the idea of sin and brokenness and alienation, and especially of late. Um, I would even pitch to you that this is the prevailing theme uh, in most art that you come across. I I remember watching an interview, and getting ready to date myself. Um, In in the 1980s, I discovered this old 60s folk singer by the name of James Taylor. If you don't know who James Taylor is, I'm embarrassed for all of you. Um, uh, But uh, singer-songwriter James Taylor, and, and got very, very, very into his music and have everything he ever did. I'm one of those guys. Uh, seen him in concert a bunch. I remember watching a video of James Taylor talking about his craft of songwriting, which is admittedly depressing. There's no question about it. If you're like in a bad mood or soured over you know brokenness of you know heartbreak or love or whatever, pick up James Taylor. You will take a bath in it um, uh, if you want. But I remember watching him interviewed, and he said, you know, he goes, I feel like the the craft of the artist is to try to come to grips with the pain inside his own heart of the sense of being hurt and feeling hurt and what comes out of him in dealing with that pain is what we call art. Again, for some of you are like, hmm, he needs to get some antidepressant medication, which he very well probably might. But it's a fascinating look at saying that when thoughtful people put pen to paper or brush to canvas or, you know, pick up their, their um, you know, instrument and begin to sing. They're wrestling with the problem of human pain. Uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth, Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, Victor Hugo and uh, Les Miserables, uh, Alexander Dumas and the Count of Monte Cristo, Hemingway, Flannery O'Connor, uh, um, Quentin Tarantino, to name a modern uh, filmmaker. All of these guys are preoccupied with this question of what is wrong with us. Uh, uh, in, at, the, at, the, at the bottom of our fallen uh, natures. I, I would even argue that, that, that the understanding of sin is both an expression of high cult- culture and low culture. Everyone's asking this question. Now, the irony, though, in all of that is that the Bible offers some degree of explanation for that reality. And yet, the last place in which you're likely to hear people talk about sin is in the church. For your generation, sin has become very much of a no-no topic. Uh, if you happen to come from what we might consider a theologically liberal, open-minded background, uh, sin became just uh, disgusting to, your, to you and to your theological background. Uh, you know, you want to put a more positive spin on things, emphasize community, finding a purpose of life, more affirmation of others, finding ways through marriage and family life. That was more of the liberal approach. Conservatives, though, for the last 25 to 30 years have also stopped talking about the doctrine of sin uh, because it would keep people away. You know, these are church growth techniques. You know, how can we get the most people in that we possibly can? The bottom line is, for the last, you know, 30, 50 years of American church history, no one's talking about this topic anymore uh, because it's distasteful for whatever reason. So the first reason why we're going to look at this is because I believe that it's a cultural reality. Okay? Second reason, though, is I think it's also a personal reality as well. It's something that's inside the human heart because, you know, sin is more than just a theory to help us understand the world. I want to say that it's supposed to get kind of close to home. 
It's supposed to deal with this realm that exists between uh, the space and our ears. What am I thinking? How am I feeling? And in my opinion, it's the explanation, at least from the Bible's perspective, of why life can be so hard and oftentimes so discouraging and so painful. Uh, you know, in Genesis chapter 4, we find uh, God looking at the, one of the first murderers, Cain, and saying to him in the midst of the murder of his brother, you know, beware, Cain, because sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. The Bible, from the opening pages of the, of the books of the Bible, acknowledges that there's this reality that is coming to get you. Um, it's really interesting. I, I, the proliferation of horror flicks, this is probably more the cultural thing, um, is, is a great evidence uh, to me. It's really funny that it's, it's kind of commonplace for y'all, but you can understand that horror flicks did not exist in the form in which they did until really about 15 years ago. Fifteen years ago, there was, maybe a little less than fifteen years, there was a landmark, groundbreaking horror film, uh, low, low, low budget film called The Blair Witch Project. You ever watch this movie? Most terrifying things. If you have motion sickness, you'll vomit halfway through it because it's the sort of jerky camera thing. Um, but it's completely differently made than any of the horror flicks before it. The rest of the horror flicks before it were these cartoonish, you know, Jason, you know, that kind of stuff. Friday the 13th, Ridiculous, and Halloween. They're all kind of, you know, sneak out and go boo kind of things. Horror films since Blair Witch have been looking and saying, you know what, I think there actually might be somebody out there. I think there's somebody tracking me down. And there's a reality that I grapple with in my life that's hard to explain outside of a very personal reality that's, that's, that's plaguing me and making my life hard, that it's a force to be reckoned with. I, I was talking a couple of uh, weeks ago with a young lady who was trying to decide whether she was going to stay in the Greek system or not. Everybody goes through that, don't you? You've gotten to this point where you're kind of like, am I really going to do this or am I not going to do this? What am I going to do? Uh, it, neither here nor there. I have conversations like this all the time. But in the midst of her discussion, you know, she was really feeling more pressure, not from her decision, but from her family. You know, she apparently had this great family history of being involved in the sorority, and she was feeling a lot of pressure to make decisions that she didn't want to make. And, you know, I felt like it was my duty to look and say, well, you know, you really do have a choice in all this. Uh, you, you empower yourself, you know. If you decide to stay in, good for you, but let it be your decision. Uh, if you decide to get out, fine, but let that be your decision, that you're taking responsibility for your own life. <laughs> but see, this is the thing. That's someone who's being empowered themselves to make their own decision. The Bible describes sin as a reality that keeps you from being able to have that privilege. The Bible looks and says, this reality is so present that it keeps you from being the free person that God created you to be. A little bit of a different thing that we're used to hearing. Sin is not something that's trying to limit your freedom. The discussion that I want to have this summer by looking at these great, huge, earth-shattering sins is an attempt to discover what it really means to be free. What does it mean for me to be free in the midst of my struggle with the pain that I feel in life? Okay, so that's why we're going to do the study. But I think it's important for us, secondly, to look at what we're going to look at. And I simply want to say... That as we look at sin, we're going to discover three things. Number one, we're going to find that sin is, um, for lack of a better word, insidious. Um, Webster's defines insidious as um, beguiling but harmful. Something which is alluring, that's calling itself 
to you. Sin is insidious in the Bible's definition because it keeps you from being able to note its own presence. Uh, okay, speaking of the, uh, 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 the, um, uh, the usual suspects, uh, I'm, I'm all about movies, forgive me tonight. Um, do you remember what Kevin Spacey's character says to Agent Coulion when he's describing the shadowy, terrifying uh, uh, Kaiser Soze who is responsible for all this crime in the world? And he looks at him and says, you know what the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was, don't you? It's convincing the world that he didn't exist. I think that's absolutely true of sin as well. The Bible describes sin as being a power whose greatest ability is to make you think you ain't got it. <laughs> that's what the word insidious means. In other words, sin will always create a force field of denial. It's a little phrase that Tim Keller uses to describe uh, sin. In other words, it's not fatal that we're sinners. It's denying that we have sin that ends up being the fatality in us. Sin is insidious. Number two, sin though is also rebellious. Uh, the Jeremiah 2 passage says that it is, there is no fear of God in us. The word fear there is not used to sort of mean you know, a dread of pain, suffering, uh, tragedy. But rather, it's the kind of fear that the Bible talks about in 1 John chapter 4, where it says, um, uh, uh, excuse me, that's the, the kind of fear that, that, that God's love is supposed to cast out. Perfect love casts out fear. The kind of fear that the Bible is referring to, a fear of God, we see in Proverbs 28. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, the Proverbs writer says. In, in this sense, fear is that one thing that's the controlling mechanism of your character. You fear whatever you respect the most in life to instruct you about your life, right? Um, <laughs> I'll give you an example. A little crass here, but you know, since he's in the room on the other side of the, of the uh, wall here, it's safe to use him as an illustration. Um, when Luke walks into the room and says, Mommy, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. That is an all-consuming life reality. Uh, it does not matter what you're doing when Luke comes in to say he has to go to the bathroom. You're going to walk him into the bathroom and help him out with this uh, little adventure. Why? Because you know exactly how urgent that really is. It may be too late even you know, when he's telling you. You never know. <laughs> and you realize the pain and suffering that you're going to go through if you don't pay attention to that reality. Um, the writers of the Bible are saying that God has got to be an all-consuming reality. That the fear of the Lord has to become for us something that cannot be denied. And yet, sin wants us to deny that very thing. It wants us to ignore an ever-present, ever-necessary reality that's at the heart of all of us. And so therefore, the fear of the Lord is to do just that. It's not terror, it's urgency. It's a sense of necessity of God's purpose. Finally, and I think uh, even more interestingly, sin is addictive. It's not just insidious, it's not just rebellious, but it's addictive. The Bible casts sin in terms of being a power unto itself that eventually robs you of your ability to say no to it. That eventually it becomes something that not that you just want to, but that you have to. 
That's the passage that Josh read for us in Jeremiah 2.25. But you have said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. I will go. I have gone to things that God did not design for me to be a part of, and that's where I've come to a point where there are no more choices. The real mischief, so says the Bible, of sin as it presents itself to us is that it robs us of our ability to choose, not the other way around. Sin is, uh, is slavery, ultimately, in the Bible's uh, calculus. Uh, so what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean for us in the end to be able to break the power of sin? And I simply want to mention this as a launching pad for the rest of our discussion. There's no greater truth that has to be grasped than the doctrine of sin if you're really going to understand the, the, the Christian message of the gospel. We talk about the gospel as being good news, as being something that we need to hear, that is good for us to hear, so said Jesus. If you don't get this right, though, you'll never get the gospel right. If you mess up on your understanding of what sin is, you end up messing the rest of the whole discussion about what it means to have salvation in Christ up as well. Um, how do you deal with your own brokenness? How do you deal with your own alienation? What do you do with your pain? Because how you understand those things is going to define the way in which you approach Christianity in the most basic of terms. Even if tonight you find yourself on the outskirts of Christianity. Even if you find yourself a sort of an outsider looking in, investigating the truth claims of Christianity. This is a linchpin issue. Get this right and the gospel makes a whole lot more sense. Biblically speaking, there are few things that will define how you understand the human condition than understanding sin. But if that's the case, there are a few things that will bring you greater joy than to discover the gospel on the other side and maybe taking Jesus at his word.